Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We praise you, our Father, that this morning we are those who have heard the word of life from the one in whom there is life, your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that, again, you would give us the life that comes from him. Strengthen our faith as we hear his life-giving words. Enable us to receive these words. and We ask it for the glory of your Son. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with a question for us, and the question is this. If the evidence of the truth of Jesus is so clear, why then is it that so many people disbelieve? Or let me put it more sharply. If the evidence of the truth of Jesus is so clear, why do so many, especially the elites of our society, the intellectual and the cultural leaders all around us, disbelieve? Well, this passage is a continuation of Jesus' words after the healing of that lame man in that dramatic way. Do you remember the man who for 38 years lay there, lame, by a pool, and Jesus came along one day and said, do you want to walk? And with a word he says, get up, and the man gets up, take your mat and walk, and the man's whole life is dramatically changed And this man is a worked example, a living example for us of Jesus' life-giving words, the words that come into a world of death and bring life. But as he does this, the Jewish leaders, rather than embracing their Messiah, we read in verse 18 of the previous passage, want to kill him. Why? Because he dares to do work on the Sabbath, which the Lord God alone can do, And because he dares to call God his father, thus making himself equal with God, they want to kill him. And Jesus' response to their murderous intentions, which he knows, is there summarized in verse 24 of the previous passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has, past tense, passed from death to life. How about that for a response when somebody tries to kill you? Jesus doesn't back down, he doubles down. And of course, the early Christians who were reading this text from the Apostle John were those who believed what Jesus said. They really did believe that their eternal destiny hung on how they responded to Jesus, that his words were the words of eternal life, that they themselves possessed the life that comes from above because they had heard Jesus' words and believed the one who had sent him. And they were excited and thrilled. But of course, at the same time, all around them, even more than is the case for us today, they were surrounded by those who wanted to kill Jesus the leaders of the community, those who were their Jewish brothers and sisters, especially 
who transferred their hatred of Jesus to the hatred of Jesus' followers. And of course, that could be unsettling for them in their faith. It caused doubt, no doubt. People much smarter than them, PhDs in theology, rabbis, the learned, the significant, do not believe Jesus so much that they want to kill his followers. And I'm sure they thought, perhaps I'm wrong, little old me. Maybe I've got the wrong end of the stick. Unsettling, but also intimidating. The hatred of Jesus now directed to them. They were so tempted, no doubt, to stay quiet, to give in, to join the crowd. I don't need to tell you that our situation is very similar to theirs. No, we're not being killed in this part of the world, but everywhere we look, all around us, and especially among the elites, there is a disdain for Jesus Christ and his teaching, his claims to divinity, his claim to exclusivity, his claims to authority to tell us how to live. It's unsettling, can cause us doubt, it is intimidating, it can cause us to shrink back. But these words this morning are words from the living Lord Jesus to strengthen us in our faith so that we would face the surrounding disbelief not with fear but with trust. To move from the temptation to doubt and to deny to having confidence to trust and even to testify to the world around us. Two parts to this passage, and the first is the defense. The truth of Jesus is undeniable. That's for your notes. The defense, the truth of Jesus is undeniable. I wonder if you notice the language that Jesus employs here. It is the language of the law court. That word testify or witness, the same underlying word, is there throughout in verse 31. And verse 32, bear witness, testimony. Verse 33, bear witness, born witness. Verse 34, 36, 37, 39, it is there everywhere. This is the law court. The word is martyr in the original language. Somebody who is a witness, somebody who testifies, and you can see how the meaning moved over time, somebody who testifies and dies in the end for doing so. And Jesus is the defense lawyer representing himself in this case, and he calls to the witness stand three different testimonies. Because, of course, that was what the Jewish law in Deuteronomy said. You could not have just one witness. Two or three witnesses was what was required. And the evidence that Jesus provides is un. Deniable. The first piece of evidence, the first witness, is John the Baptist. Verse 33. You sent to John, he says to these Jewish authorities, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. That is, Jesus doesn't need John to tell him that he is the Son of God. He knows that. But you need to know it from his lips, from a man, that you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. It's all too easy for us to forget the significance of John the Baptist. He was the most important figure in all of human history, just behind the Lord Jesus, just behind in a hugely significant way. But he was the number two, the most significant person ever born to man. He was ABC, BBC, Xinhua, CNN, 24-hour news. That was his impact at the time. 
He was the last and greatest prophet of the Old Testament sent by God. The whole region of Judea at the time came out to him in the wilderness to hear his message and to turn around and turn back to God. His impact was enormous. And in verse 33, Jesus is referring to what we read all the way back in chapter 1, verse 19, when the Jewish leadership sent delegates from Jerusalem to John out there in the desert as he was clothed in his Versace camel wear and leather belt. And they asked him at that time, are you the Christ? And do you remember Jesus, uh, John's response? He says, no, 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 no. I'm the voice that Isaiah spoke of, the voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way for the Lord, for Yahweh, the return of your Creator. I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie the straps of his sandals. The next day we read how John sees his cousin Jesus walking by, coming towards him, and he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who has come to provide sacrifice so man can be in relationship with God again. He ranks before me because he was before me. John deliberately alluding to the eternity of Jesus, the word from the beginning who came into the world. And then in chapter 3, John's own disciples are unhappy because this Jesus figure has begun doing our work. They're baptizing. They're muscling into our market. John, tell him to stop. No, says John, that's the bridegroom. This is the Lord who has come to bring the wedding feast of the new creation. I'm just the best man. I'm, I'm out of the way now. He must increase and I must decrease. And verse 35, Jesus says to the Jewish leaders now again, John was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in the light that he provided. That word burning could be an ignited light. That is from above. God who has ignited somebody to be a light shining in the darkness of this world like a floodlight onto the main thing, Jesus himself. And that was John's job. And Jesus says, you rejoiced. You were happy about John. You could see so clearly he was a prophet of God. You were happy about him, but you hate the one that he came to speak about. But John was right. He was clearly a prophet of God, and he was clearly truthful in what he said about the Lord Jesus. Evidence number one, witness number one, the greatest prophet who has ever lived has said that what I claim is true. Evidence two, well, evidence two is Jesus' own words. Verse 36, but the testimony, the witness, the evidence that I have is even greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Yeah, John's witness was impressive, but there's an even greater witness, greater evidence for you to see with your eyes, which you've just seen, says Jesus, my works, my signs, my life-giving actions. And again, do you remember from John's gospel, water into wine? Jesus is the bridegroom, the Lord himself, who has come to bring into this dead world the eternal 
wedding feast with the wonderful, well-aged wine promised by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus is the man who healed a man on the Sabbath, doing what only God could do, giving life to a man who was virtually dead. And this is Jesus who will raise Lazarus from the tomb, come out Lazarus, death from life, literally, and who himself will be raised from the grave. It is evidence after evidence after evidence that he is the creator. Let's stop and pause for a while. We take it for granted as Christians, but who else could do this? It is no magic trick. He's about to feed 5,000 people, not including women and children, and nobody denies it at the time. There aren't swathes of evidence from the Old Testament, Josephus saying, oh, this man was a, a hoaxer. No, they all admit freely that he did it. Even his opponents, do you remember, in Mark's Gospel, don't deny that he's been casting out demons. They're not stupid. No, they say he does it by the power of Satan. But we can see, anyone can see, that this man is no ordinary man. There is no one like him. He is the creator whose words have the power of eternal life because he has life in himself and nobody else before or since ever has. Witness one, John the Baptist. Witness two, Jesus' own works. And then the granddaddy, if that's not too irreverent, the greatest of all, the Father himself. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. What a witness to bring to the witness stand. God the Father. And how is it that the Father has been testifying, pointing towards, giving evidence of the truthfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he's been doing it for centuries upon centuries through the prophets of Israel, his spokespeople who have brought his word about his son for his people. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Extraordinary thought, isn't it? The Old Testament scriptures which we have in our hands are the words of the Father through his chosen prophets all about his Son. The Scriptures bear witness about Jesus. What is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is God the Father's witness to the coming of his Son. I had a friend who was ministering in a part of London called Islington, which is a very Jewish area, and there were some Jewish near neighbours to the church who were connected with one of the church families, who had a bereavement in the family. I believe it was the mother, the matriarch of the family. And everyone, as you might expect, was terribly, terribly sad. And this friend, who was a minister at the church, went to visit the family as a kindness, as the local minister, uh, brought them some things, no doubt, and then offered to read from the scriptures for them. And he said, allow me to read something from your Old Testament scriptures as a means of comfort to you at this time. And he turned up Isaiah chapter 53. And any of us who know Colin Buchanan, you've got children, know that Isaiah 53 says, ba, ba, do, ba, ba. No, no, it says, 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What do you think the response was from that Jewish family? It was outrage. How dare you? How dare you at a time like this read from your Christian scriptures and speak about your Messiah? They say Isaiah 53 is the hidden text that Jews are not allowed to read because it is so obviously, patently clear who is being spoken about. The scriptures bear witness to Jesus. The same point made in verse 46. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, that is the author of the first five books of the Bible, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all about Jesus Christ. As we had in our reading from Deuteronomy. Now Jesus won't be the one accusing on the judgment day as the leaders of Israel, the experts in the Pentateuch, the Old Testament scriptures are there before the judgment seat, Moses will be there. In a kind of free translation, Moses will be pointing to them and saying, you fatheads, what were you doing? Could you not see what I wrote about him? It was always about him. As an implication for us, just for a moment before we draw to the main application, as it were, we are people here at St. Thomas's who are people of the Word. I'm not sure if you've noticed that, if you're a visitor. Everything seems to be about the Bible. We seem to be obsessed about it. We sing words from the Bible. We pray words from the Bible. We confess and speak words of the Bible together in creeds. We listen to words of the Bible in our readings. We preach words of the Bible, and so on and so forth. Why? Well, there is a great danger for us that we miss the wood from the trees. We don't want to be like these Old Testament Jewish authorities who search the Scriptures but stop at the Scriptures. No, it's the words of Jesus. We're on about Jesus because He has life, and we're on about His words because it's His words which give eternal life. Sometimes people will slander churches like ours and say, you are... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. But that's not the case. And we mustn't slip into that or be guilty of that. No, we're obsessed about the Bible because the Bible is the Spirit-inspired, life-giving words of Christ. And may that be the case in our Bible studies this year. What a travesty, what a tragedy if we're there working away at Romans or John or whatever we're studying this year and we're just interested intellectually in the grammar and the history and the poetry. All that's good. But it should lead us and must lead us to the Christ of those words. That's a side application, as it were. But the main application is that we can trust Jesus. We can believe what he says about himself because of these profound witnesses. John the Baptist... Jesus' own works, undeniable. God the Father for centuries through his prophets, through a book which is extraordinary in its unity despite its diversity of authors and times and locations. So, 
Why, if it is so clear, do people not believe? Especially the religious experts, the cultural elites, those people who you might expect to have worked it out. Well, the answer is, the problem is not a problem of the head. It is a problem of the heart. It is not intellectual. It is moral in the end. Part one, the defense, the truth of Jesus is undeniable. But part two, the prosecution. Disbelief in Jesus is culpable. Disbelief in Jesus is culpable. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, but what do they do? They refuse to come to him that they may have life. It is a decision of the will. Or again, verse 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but they don't, or rather they won't. It's as if Moses is dragging them like a recalcitrant child towards Christ, and they are saying, absolutely not. No, 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 I won't go. And why? Because, verse 42, you do not have the love of God within you. Despite all of their outward religious activity, all the robes that they wear and the mitres and the crooks, all the religious activity, they don't love God. In fact, they hate him. Listen to Bishop J.C. Ryle. He said, It is a want, that is a lack of will, to come to Christ for salvation that will be found in the last place to have shut out so many from heaven. It's not men's sins. All manner of sins will be forgiven. It is not the decree of God. We are not told in the Bible of any whom God has only created to be destroyed. It is not any limit in Christ's work of redemption. He has paid the price sufficient for all mankind. No, it is something far, far more than this. It is man's own unwillingness to come to Christ, repent and believe. That's the issue. An unwillingness because there is no love of God in their hearts. No love of God in our hearts by nature. Instead, there is a love of man and the praise that comes from man. Do you see that in verse 44? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Later on in John's Gospel, Jesus will explain why some of the authorities, even though they know who Jesus is, will not believe in him, will not follow him because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The problem is not a problem of the head, it is a problem of the heart. And as we close, two implications for us. First, a a minor implication, as it were, and that is to our witness to the world. The way that the world will be brought to Christ is not through our intellectual arguments. I get a bit nervous when Christian churches and ministers wheel out somebody who's a great professor of mathematics or a great intellectual who's a Christian, say, look, you can be clever and be Christian. Isn't that impressive? Or or the strength of our arguments about the existence of God from human logic 
which are true. I mean, how could this possibly be here by accident? All of that's good and fine, but that's not where the power is. Now, the power lies in the living word of Jesus Christ, unashamed and preached to dead people. And prayer. Why did we begin our year with a prayer meeting? I'm so glad we did, and I'm so thrilled there were so many of us there, and I wish there were more of us there. I'm so grateful for the prayer diary, because prayer is evidence that we're trusting in the power of God to do His work, which is impossible, and not the work of man. The Jewish authorities had all the evidence. They had all the intellect, but they would not receive Christ. In the end, it is not intellectual. It must go through our minds. It is moral. It is a heart issue. And God and God alone is the only one who can deal with that. But more specifically, is that we should not be intimidated and we should not be unsettled when we find people who should know better disbelieving what is obvious and true. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is crystal clear. All of us are sexual sinners in in different ways. None of us is straight in that way. All of us, whether just in our minds or also in our actions, are guilty of sexual sin. The Bible makes it clear and Jesus makes it clear there is one place and one place only for sexual activity in the beautiful God-given gift of marriage. Jesus, in these very words that I've just read out, makes it clear that marriage is to be heterosexual, monogamous and lifelong. Can't miss it. This week, the Church of England bishops moved a motion and pushed a motion onto the General Synod that made the way for the blessing of same-sex unions in church. The religious and intellectual elite, the PhDs of theology, the leaders of God's people in that country saying that the words of Jesus are not clear. They should have got themselves down to spec savers. But why? Oh, it's not an intellectual problem. No, 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 no. It's a heart issue. In fact, it is because they love the glory of man instead of the glory that comes from God. It's because they fear what the guardian will say or their friends around them, or the lobby of this or that interest group, instead of the words of the living Lord Jesus Christ, and accept the hatred that comes with that. Now, brothers and sisters, we can be confident to trust. Don't be unsettled by all those around us, however impressive they seem to be, because they do not believe. No, it is clear, it is obvious, it is true. It is because they will not believe. Do not be unsettled. But also, at the same time, trust, rejoice that you have eternal life. It has entered into your heart and never, ever turn back. Trust, but also, and briefly and finally, testify. Testify, speak where you have opportunity, despite the opposition. And it is there, all of us, me included, very much 
fear man. That's what stops me from speaking. I don't know about you. But we need not do that. We must not do that. We must speak the words of eternal life in the face of opposition because this and this alone is what will save hell-bound sinners like us before for eternal life. We pray together. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. How we thank you, Heavenly Father, for your words which center us, which speak to us, which remind us of what we know to be true. We ask that you would indeed strengthen us by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ today, that we might trust him with deep conviction and confidence, despite all those around who do not, and that we would even be bold enough to testify for him in the situations of life in which you have placed us, knowing that he and he alone is the one whom we must honour. Amen.